Hello everyone, on behalf of George and myself, I uh, want to welcome you all to today's uh, event and thank you so much for coming this evening, I really appreciate that. Um, this is um, an event, the first in-person event we are organizing on behalf of the Ultimate Global Podcast. Uh, we've been running it now for two years, slightly more than two years. Um, and, uh, you know, if I look back into the journey of this podcast, pretty inspiring um, and pretty uh, different than other podcasters for sure. Um, we have recorded more than 120 episodes in the last two years. Uh, we have invited more than 100 speakers uh, across domains. Um, and this was a topic uh, that, you know, I suggested to George a few months ago and I said, we haven't organized a single in-person event. Uh, what should be the topic for that? So a lot of the topics that I thought of came into my mind around sustainability, which Afonso will talk about, um, around, uh, you know, how universities can help uh, make better business leaders, um, and also the role of women. Uh, what's, what's the role of women um, or equal participation of women? We're talking about equality in gender pay. Uh, for the first time in Australia, maybe, um, which is going to be there in January or February or whenever there is going to be, which is an important topic again. Um, and then the fourth pillar, when we talk about building a better Australia, is immigrants, uh, which David is going to talk about. There are a lot of immigrants, a lot of refugees. I'm an immigrant as well. I came to Australia four years ago from India. Um, I did my master's in international business from this uni itself, UNSW. Uh, started working full time and then, um, yeah, then I launched this particular podcast and I'm also running a meetup group. So, just trying to tell you that um, it's been a very interesting um, journey for this podcast. Um, and I'm pretty happy that we are organizing our first in-person event today. If you haven't followed our channels yet, I've got a QR code here for you to scan. Uh, go to the page, and if you haven't followed us on Spotify, Apple iTunes, YouTube, wherever you listen to a podcast to, just go in and follow us. That will really help us to you know, build the momentum on different platforms that we are on. Um, before we start off today's episode, uh, sorry, today's episode, that's what I'm always keen to say, but today's podcast um, and today's show is we would like to start this event by acknowledging and paying our respects to the Bidjigal and Gadigal peoples, the traditional custodians of the land where each of our UNSW campuses are located. Um, and we also want to uh, appreciate all the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, elders past, present, and emerging, and their communities who have uh, shared and practiced their teachings over thousands of years. Uh, we recognize uh, their uh, ongoing leadership and contributions, including to business, education, and industry. Um, and also, we want to thank uh, our main sponsors for tonight. So we've got four sponsors, as you can see on the display. We've got UNSW founders uh, who have uh, provided us with the space for today's session um, to get connected with these guys. I think they are doing a fabulous job in building the founders for tomorrow. Um, and in just giving the hope to people that you can do something of your own. So do go to their page um, and um, also attend their events. We've got 
another sponsor that's Etsy Consulting. It's run by my co-host George. Do you want to say something about Etsy? And also Ross Hutchison. So um, Etsy Consulting uh, came from my Greek background. Um, if you ask somebody who's Greek, how do you set the table, they would say Etsy ke Etsy. This way and that way. And so I created the name Etsy and it's to be a business coach and advisor but a holistic coach and advisor. Um, I'm particularly interested in young business people and university students. If anybody in the room fits into young business people and university students, you should follow up with me after the event and let's see if I can help you. Um, the other part is I'm very proud to be the CEO of the Ross Hutchison Foundation. And I wish every one of you a very happy Christmas. I wish that to the people that we're going to help in Penrith. They won't have it. There's people that are suffering from domestic violence. There's people that are living under the bridges. There's people that are living in parks. There are people that if we don't feed them each week, they don't eat. The Ross Hutchison Foundation is about, we don't care what brings you to our door, we just want to put a smile on your face. So if you like what's happening today, and this was sponsored by the Foundation because Ross and I believe in getting a better Australia, and you got a spare five or ten dollars and you want to donate that to the Ross Hutchison Foundation, every five dollars we can feed between one and two people. We feed people between three and five dollars a head and we feed between 100 and 150 every week of every month of every year. So part of building a better Australia is if we can get better business people to run better businesses, then hopefully we'll get more support for my charity. Thank you. I can definitely see some tears coming out uh, of George's eyes because uh, I think the two initiatives, and the second one especially, is very close to his heart um, where he genuinely wants to help people who, who really need help. Uh, you know, people who already have shelter or, or who already have got a roof on the top of their head, they don't need help. But the people who are suffering and uh, who don't have anything uh, in their hand are the ones who actually need help. And George is doing an incredible job in that. The fourth uh, sponsor for tonight we have got is Bongiorno Media, if I'm spelling it correctly, Dave. Um, the videographer for today is Dave. Um, and he's our fourth sponsor. So thank you so much, Dave, for being there tonight. I appreciate that. Um, before we introduce uh, the speakers for tonight, just running through the agenda, um, we plan to run today's session by giving a chance to all our speakers to come here, speak for 10 minutes on a topic that we have assigned to them, um, followed up by any Q&A that you guys have. So we want you to be involved once they have spoken one by one on different topics uh, around building a better Australia. Um, I've already told you about why we started off with this podcast. Um, the main reason was to share the stories of inspiring individuals with uh, others in the society. Um, and I always call that it's a beautiful flavor or it's a delicious flavor of youthfulness and an experienced mindset that you listen to on this podcast. Um, because He's the youthful one. 
I didn't say that. <laughs> um, but, uh, but, but I think it's, it's a really good combination, which you find really on podcasts. Either it's all young people doing it. Um, so it's a, it's a very unique flavor that you find on this podcast, where you can listen to stories, listen to people talking about different things. Uh, we have invited people across different ranges. Uh, it can be in business, politics, uh, sales, CEOs, founders, co-founders. Uh, our top series has been the one which we have done with CEOs, founders, and co-founders. In fact, in this audience, I can spot three people who have been our speakers on this podcast. One has been Toby, uh, who talked about uh, the benefits of LinkedIn. We've got Martin, who talked about um, how to become more courageous and how to raise your voice at the right time when you need to do that. We've also got Wiz, who is sitting at the back very quietly. He's got his LinkedIn Top Batch Award yesterday. Um, and he's sitting very quietly at the back, but he's really a talented folk. He is the founder of Greenfluence, um, working towards sustainability, uh, which can be good to, three, uh, good to connect with Afonso later on. But uh, we'll not waste a lot of time. The first speaker for today is David Keegan. David is the founder and CEO of Host International. Host International um, aims to provide assistance to refugees, who are transitioning from uh, the host countries and they want to see benefits while entering into Australia. So David is involved in uh, providing different kind of benefits to refugees and immigrants, uh, which is a great thing. And David is going to talk about challenges faced by migrants that want to enter the workplace and business world in Australia. So over to you, David. You can sit there or you want to stand, it's up to you. Uh, good evening, everybody. Thanks for having me here. Uh, so, as was said in the introduction, I'm the CEO and founder of Host International. Uh, we, I started Host International really out of frustration that we were, we've been in a culture in Australia for a long time of othering migrants and making them out to be the demon and the reason for all the problems we have. Uh, and I felt that a lot of that was connected to uh, a lot of misunderstanding in the community about migrants and refugees and, and their contributions that they make and, uh, and the social connections that are not in place to support people to get the outcomes that they need. And in particular tonight I've been asked to speak about migrant employment because that's an area where we particularly focus and it's been one that we've been trying to work on and overcome. And so I want you to think back to your, you know, your first professional job so when's the first time you've applied for a professional job? If you haven't applied for a professional job because you haven't finished your study yet, just think about your first job. What were some of the things that got you across the line with that job? What were some of the things that helped you to know how to apply for that job, who to talk to, how to submit an application? I'm not going to ask you to respond, but I just want you to reflect on that for a sec. Certainly for me, uh, when I first, so my background's in social work. When I first um, entered the social work workforce, I applied through a, an ad in the paper. I submitted a resume uh, and a cover letter that I had learnt was the way that you do things uh, through university. Uh, through my placement at uni, I had built connections with people, uh, 
that helped me to know where and when jobs were happening and who I should, how I should pitch my application. Obviously, I knew English, and so I could write and, and communicate well in that. Um, I also had uh, experiences of working in Australia. I also had qualifications that were recognised in Australia. And, um, and I guess I knew about what it was like to work in an Australian workforce. Now, many of those things are actually not available to migrants when they come to this country. And it doesn't mean that migrants are incapable of work or have some disadvantage because they've been uh, experiencing trauma or they've been in a refugee-like situation. What a lot of time we don't realise is that migrants uh, are coming here without having necessarily the connections in place, without necessarily knowing how things work in Australia. Not all migrants are poor English speakers. Some of them know English really well. Uh, some people do have connections. But very often what migrants face is that they don't get same access to jobs as other people. So one of the reasons I became interested in this is because there are around 150,000 to 200,000 migrants coming to Australia every year. And constantly in the work that I've been doing in this space, I hear of people who have master's degrees driving Ubers because they can't get a job as an engineer or as a medical scientist because that's what they're trained in. And people would say to you, I've worked for years on really important jobs and really, you know, I've worked for government, I've done this and I've done that, but I can't get a job here, I can't even get an interview here. So I became really curious about why does that happen? And I think as I talk to refugees and migrants, so I'm using those terms generally, uh, I found that people were struggling to know how to pitch into the right space, but they're also facing bias and... Um, I don't think it's necessarily a discrimination or a racism thing, but I think that there is bias that people are facing. And even though recently we've had really low unemployment, there has actually still continued to be difficulties for migrants to access work, even though it's very easy, theoretically, to get a job. And so there's something going wrong there. And so one of the things I guess I'm wanting you to think about today is how do you play a part in making sure that there isn't exclusion in the workforce? And I don't think this exclusion is on purpose. I think it happens because we're not testing our own assumptions and we're not thinking about um, the structures that are in place and how they might disadvantage other people. So some of the things that are common for migrants and refugees is they do, particularly if you're a refugee, you've probably experienced gaps in your employment. So the typical story for a refugee is you flee a country where there's conflict or violence or persecution. You go to a country where you can get to safely. Um, and there's various ways of how people get to those sorts of countries. And then you apply for UNHCR resettlement, and that can take you 10, 15, how many years. And so during that time, you're not allowed to work. You might be able to work informally, but you can't put that on your resume. So if you think about it, if you were applying for a job here and you had 10 years of unemployment, that's going to look bad for you. The other thing is a lot of us don't realise how much we use our networks, and networks is probably something we'll end up talking a bit about tonight. But networks and community relationships are super important for many different things, not only for how you build your support networks, but also just for how you get jobs. So one of the things we realised was that migrants didn't have this access to people who could say, I know this person, I know they can do the job, and they are who they say they are. And so that becomes a big difficulty. A lot of employers also were really focusing on local experience. So many refugees and migrants were telling me that employers were rejecting them because they didn't have local experience or didn't have local, locally recognised qualifications. 
And to get your qualifications recognised in Australia, you might think is simple, but it's actually not. There is no universal system for that, and it does cost quite a bit of money. So there are some functional issues like that that, that cause people difficulties in accessing uh, employment. I think the other thing to reflect on, though, from, uh, from people who might be getting into the workforce or into business, um, there's increasing evidence that uh, diversity in the workplace actually creates more innovative organisations, uh, it creates a more engaged workforce, and it creates more globally capable organisations. Now, I don't know the academic evidence around that, but I think those three things are, are, are good things for any organisation. But I think what we've got to do is get to a point where organisations are actually thinking about their recruitment processes and how they might be disadvantaging other um, communities uh, by either screening out people because they don't have, they haven't worked locally, or because their name's different, or because they don't have local experience. Now that doesn't mean you should be making exceptions for people, but one of the things that would be most useful for people is having opportunities for work experience, for internships. Uh, and there's also lots of need for people to mentor and support newcomers to access the workforce. So one of the programs we've been running for a while uh, that Sir Rob's actually involved in is an industry mentoring program. So we're finding if we connect a migrant to an industry mentor, so somebody who's working in a related industry that they're interested in, they can make an enormous impact on opening doors for that person to build their network, to introduce them to job opportunities and to potentially be a referee for them. And we're finding that refugees and migrants that are connected to a mentor are actually having much more job outcomes. The other thing that I think is important is that we need to help migrants and refugees to be patient and persistent. So it is very difficult for people to walk out of a job in one country and into the same level of job in this country. But it's also important that they don't give up on getting back to that level. And so career advice and support to help people move through an organisation is also important. And so those things... Um, we find need work. But I might wrap it there. I think um, they're some of the main things that we've noticed uh, and I'm happy to take more questions on how that looks and how that can work. Thanks. Thank you so much, David. Um, and I think one of the most important points that you just talked about is how important it is for you to network. Uh, when you come to a new country, um, and I keep on emphasizing it with different people, um, Anna knows about that when uh, we participated in the UNSW Business School event, and I talked about this thing that uh, when you come to a new country, just don't apply filters. Go and attend events. Even if you're not getting a value out of it, that's fine. Just go and attend that event and meet new people and have the courage to talk uh, to a new person. That's, that's the more important thing. You never know which connection might lead you to um, which place. Um, I met George uh, three years ago uh, for an interchange, during an interchange competition. We never knew that we'll start a podcast and we never knew that this event will be taking place today. So you never know the power of networking unless you actually do that. So George, do you want to introduce our next speaker? As I always do, whenever he asks me about something, I go on to something else instead. So, firstly, is there anybody that's got a question from um, what uh, David shared with us? Probably we can take it afterwards. We can, we can do that. We've got a couple of minutes. He was ahead of time. He's a good fellow. So, um, any, any questions from the floor at all at the moment? 
If not, I want to... Sh oh, yes. Um, uh, I guess you mentioned there are a lot of biases in the recruitment process. Do you think there's ways that companies can remove bias for these um, refugees that Given the uh, yeah, there are. Um, I, I think there. You need to look at this in terms of different entry points. And so, one first of all is um, sort of graduate. So companies have graduate or internship type positions. They're often geared towards people who are coming straight out of university. But I think um, what I would do is encourage companies to look at opportunities for people who may be at, may be new to the country to be able to have access to those opportunities. But for example, a lot of those applications require you to put forward um, documentation that's associated with graduating uh, that are not always available to refugees. Uh, the other thing I think that can be done is there's, in, there's a debate around using AI in the screening of um, of resumes, I have mixed feelings about that. I think it might work, it might not, but it's one way that you can reduce the bias that happens. I think one of the ways I look at bias is that I think it's not, as I said, I don't think it's necessarily a deliberate bias. I think what happens is you think, this person's from another country, they've probably got limited English, they may not understand how things work here, and so that's just hard work. That's, that's what my brain used to do. And then I, but I think what, I've found useful is to train people to be aware of the, the um, to train hiring managers to be aware of those biases and to check those biases against reality, but also to um, think about what structures are in place within the organisation to support people to come in, because very often migrants will have quite useful and relevant and significant experience, but employers will be turned off by thinking there's too much work to do to get that person integrated in. So looking at ways that people can come in through other mechanisms like short-term contracts is also useful. And I think um, the other avenue is for companies to look for talent through networking activities and other types of opportunities to meet people, try them out, um, without necessarily going through this conventional apply through a paper form and go through an interview. Like, I think that process in itself is probably a little bit limiting, it, particularly when you look at diversity from a broader perspective, not just on migrant diversity. So that would be the main things. Thank you. Okay, so our next speaker is Sandra D'Souza. And Sandra and I go back about eight years, We I think we decided on. Um, if you're not following her, if you've not heard about her, and you really actually care about wanting to make a change, and you actually really care about getting a fairer and more equitable world, especially for women in business, which this country and this world is still way, way behind, then you should follow her. Um, it gives me great pleasure to ask Sandra to come up and talk tonight. Um, and I'm, yes, you can come up now. Um, I'm going to break the rules again, and I'm going to ask you to please explain to these people what was the award you got last night. Thank you, George. Um, I'm um, hi everyone, and I'll answer that question in a sec. It's part of what I'm um, presenting anyway. Um, as you'll know, my name is Sandra D'Souza. Um, my pronouns are she, her. 
I'm also the author of a book called From Bias to Equality. So it's nice to, you know, David has already warmed the audience on that topic and I've got a little bit more to share. Um, my, last night, um, the book was finally published in June this year and um, it was entered into the Australian Business Book Award um, and last night it made it as the finalist for the category of social responsibility. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, the reason why that book came about was um, as the CEO and, and founder of Elect, we, my team and I, we wanted to have a look where we're at with gender equality in leadership roles in the C-suite. And when I talk about C-suite, it's the, you know, the chiefs of everybody, um, as well as the board of directors. And so we went through all the companies in the Australian Stock Exchange. They're all listed in there. There's publicly available information, so it's quite easy to check them out. And we scored them um, against four criteria. The first criteria is if they have, uh, they get one point if they have one woman um, CEO or CFO. They get another point if they have a woman board chair. A third point, if they have at least 25% of women on boards. And the fourth point, if they have at least 25% of women in the um, C-suite, in the executive team, the most senior leadership team. And if they score at least three points or more, um, we consider them really committed to gender equality. Now, I'm going to ask all of you, out of um, almost 2,100 companies, so that's over 2,000, how many companies do you think scored three points or more? You might even ask the panel. David might have an idea, but um, just throw out a number. 20%. You think 20%? You got five? You got 10? David? Don't Any number, Jim? Or so. Okay. They're all very good numbers. The 98 companies, which works out to be less than 5%. Really low. And I was shocked, but not shocked. I've been in the, um, um, my career started as a, a, an accountant, as a corporate, and then 10 years ago, I started my own business and into digital marketing, where people say I've crossed over to the dark side. So I've got the um, entrepreneurial side of me. Um, but I also spent 20 years volunteering for an international NGO, where um, I was, I was elected as a state president a number of years ago. I was on their international board, which is affiliated with the United Nations. So I'm across all of the research um, when it comes to gender equality from community level all the way to international level. And there was so much in the talk and research saying things are progressing. So when I, when I saw that number, I thought, wow, that is really no. Before I go and tell you about the book, what was... Um, what was the outcome and the reason more about the book. Um, I, oh, I went um, ahead and um, for tonight's um, presentation, I thought I'd better share some data with you guys because we all love data here, don't we? And um, just to say where we're at with the gender equality scorecard in Australia. So this is 2022 data. Um, by WGEA, which is the Workplace Gender Equality Agency, and companies over 100 employees have to report, um, provide the, all the necessary data about their employees, um, pay gap, like pay salary information, um, about their information. So this is based on four and a half million employees in Australia. 
Um, the 2023 scorecard is actually due any day now, but I've got the last year's data. So the gender pay gap where it stood is at 22.8%. So that means for every man that earns a dollar, woman earns 77 cents. Okay, so, you know, that's a, a clear gap. And it didn't change from the year before. Every industry, and by the way, this is not man bashing. I just wanted to share the stat. There's no man bashing going on over here. Um, every industry has a pay gap that favours men. Um, men have significantly more likely to hold, hold uh, managerial positions, even in female-dominated industries. Men account for 13% of all paid primary carers leave, which is up from 12% the year before, but two years ago it was only 6%. So we're slowly progressing, but still very low number. Only one in five boards have gender balance. 22% of CEO um, are women, up a little bit from the year before. And here's an interesting stat from, um, not from uh, WGIA, but from uh, Global Institute of Women Leadership is that Australian men, 30% of Australian men, which is larger than global, which is about 21%, actually believe that gender inequality does not exist. Right. So, yeah, I know. They haven't read your book yet. <laughs> they haven't read my book. <laughs> so, um, why is this happening? I'm going to read, I've got more stats, you know, and I'll try not to look, but... I call it unintentional bias. David has already started talking about it. And unintentional bias, and we all have bias, by the way. We, we have it, it's how we function. Um, there's nothing wrong with it. It's only that it's how you let it influence your actions and your decisions. And, and we ha there is systematic issues, um, and, and they create invisible barriers. Not only just, also, you know, migrants and, and refugees definitely agree to that, but also to women. And so this is what happens, men and women actually, when you think about like when I give you the low stat on primary care leaves for men. So I'm gonna share some more stats and I might go over time a little bit, sorry, George. Um, these are the stats in terms of how the unintentional bias can influence your day to day. So, um, you know, if you're working, I mean, this is also, also to raise awareness. So did you know, and this is a famous stat by the way, when it comes to applying for a job, that if a man sees a job role in terms of responsibilities and they think they can do 60% of the role, they'll apply for that role. But for a woman, they need to feel 100% before they would apply. Um, and I'm going to read, sorry, I don't like looking at paper when I'm seeing, but I'm just going to read out these stats. There's another study that shows that both men and women are likely to hire a male candidate, twice as likely to hire a male candidate, but when you have two, two at least two women, candidates in the pool, women are 79 times more likely to be hired. Um, women and men ask for pay rises at the same rate, but women receive pay rises 5% less often. There's, a very, there's three very big studies in the US, and, um, and I want you to kind of like consider this every time you go into a meeting. This is about meeting behavior. This is, the first one is based on 155,000 conference calls, and what they discovered was that men spoke 92% of the time. Another study that published that found that women speak 25% less than men on average meetings when both men and women are present. And another study said that both men and women are more likely to interrupt someone if they're female. So 
So these are just the unintentional bias that kind of like, you know, it's engraved in us and, and that the kind of behaviour. So it makes it harder for women to be seen when it comes to meetings. Um, another stat is that 40%, sorry, half of men, uh, less than half of males spend um, 42%, sorry, I'm getting the stats wrong. They spend less time on housework, let me just put it this way, and um, compared to 70% of women. And mothers spend an average of three and a half hours participating in childcare activities compared to fathers, which is two hours and 20 minutes. Um, and so these are the stats, like I said, it's not men bashing, but awareness is really the first step of change. And so, um, how does this relate to my book? Well, the reason I wrote the book was because from the stat that I told you about, there's only 98 companies, I wanted to find out what makes these companies different? How come these CEOs can achieve gender equality in leadership roles when others can't? So I interviewed them. I reached out to them. I interviewed them. And, um, and I actually, that's the, what the book is based, is kind of like say these are the five things that what can be done. And, and this is what I think will help also drive um, better Australia because um, these strategies can help companies to get greater women representation. I'm not going to wait till you read the book. I'm going to share it with you because I'm generous that way. <laughs> um, so the five ways are... Um, actually, before I go back and talk about the five ways, the, the one thing I did notice, and I want to share it with you, is that the commonality across all of the CEOs, aside from the five ways in terms of how they're doing things, was that there was nothing in common at all. They, it didn't matter if they were a founding CEO or if they were recruited in. It didn't matter if they were a small cap listed company or very large glo global all around the world. It didn't matter if the industry was male dominated, female dominated. Um, I spoke to mining, technology, textile, manufacturing. Um, and, um, and it didn't matter, let's say, if they were recruited in or whether um, they were founded. I may have already repeated that. But what was common across all of them was that they really believed in diversity and that they were committed to make sure that happened, cascading all the way across. So if you do see a company that has diversity in their leadership team and boards, you know that they are really committed to it from the top. And so the five ways um, that I talk about in the book in terms of how to drive that gender equality change and what was common is the values and belief. If the CEO really believes and, and, and has that, so you need to assess that, um, that is one thing because that shows that you truly believe in gender equality and diversity. Um, the second thing that was common was that they secured support from the board chair um, to help drive change. They, the third one is that they incorporated targets into their strategic plan. Fourth one is that they empower their leadership team. So it's not really up to the CEO. They actually empower the leadership team to roll it out. And the last one was that, which David has alluded, um, they create an inclusive recruitment practice to make sure that they recruited um, diverse candidates into the roles. So why is that important? I'm almost done here, I promise, George. Um, why this is important, I've talked about a lot of problems and shared the data in terms of you know, the gaps and things like that. And there is actually a lot of research that showed that having increased women representation on teams and board, the companies do perform a lot better. And if you could bear with me for me to read this out, I've got the latest research that I wanted to share by McKinsey, 
2019 analysis, is the latest one I could find, that found that companies in the top quartile of gender diversity on executive teams were 25% more likely to experience above average profitability than peer companies in the fourth quartile. And what's really interesting is that the higher the representation, um, the more likelihood of outperformance. So they've got companies, their data showed companies with 30, more than 30% of women on their executive teams are significantly more likely to perform those with 10 to 30% of women. And they're more likely to outperform their peers. And basically, there is a substantial differential of performance of 48% when you compare to a company with no diversity, no women representation, to great, the, the, the most diverse, gender diverse companies. So that is research supporting why it's important to have women represented um, on, on, in the leadership team and boards. I'm going to part with you a quote. This quote is from Elizabeth Broderick, founder of the Champions of Change Coalition. Um, I don't know how many of you have heard of her? No? Good, good. There's a couple here. And uh, if not, I, 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 I do um, I think you should Google. But her quote really summarised the, all the interviews that I did with the CEOs. Um, and, and this is what she says. One of the things I've learned is that if you don't intentionally include women, you unintentionally exclude women. Thank you. That wasn't too far over. Well done. Um, Sandra and I have had a couple of chats about this and it's a rather confronting thing when somebody tells you, which she didn't say these words to me, but in our conversation she basically said to me, George, you've got bias that you don't even realise. And that is confronting. But it, it really makes sense. It, it started to resonate. And um, I haven't shared this with Sandra because I haven't caught up with her since we had that chat. I was born at Fairfield, which is western suburbs, Sydney. My parents were born in Australia. And I was born in Australia. And when I was around 12 or 13, I had... Blonde, I mean like blonde hair. But my name's Mavros because my parents' parents were born in Greece. And when I went to North Sydney Boys High, which that was a change from Fairfield, western suburbs of Sydney, over to Northbridge, which is very elitist and big money part of town, I was one of the wogs at school. Like... I'm as Australian as the next bloke. I'm a very proud Australian. I got into many arguments with my relatives. But the unawareness of those kids that because I had a name that was from a Greek descent, I was a wog. And they treated me, some of them, in that manner. And I went to school with a couple of guys who were of Jewish background. And myself and two others defended those guys several times in the first few weeks because kids were picking on them because they were Jews. And I just said to somebody one day, why are you doing that? What? Why are you doing that? Why, are you, why do you want to fight him? Because if you're going to fight him, you're going to fight me. 
Not that I was a very good fighter, but at least there was four of us in the fight, not just two of them. And they couldn't answer that question. And it was after our conversation I thought about, yes, there's that hidden bias. These kids were picking on me because somebody had told them, anybody with that name, there's got to be a walk. Now, those of my friends that know me, I'm no more, I'm no more Greek than most people from England. Um, uh, I'm the black sheep of my family. So once you get past that confrontation with yourself, you might start to think about how do I understand that and then what do I do about it? And I love that saying. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use that somewhere. So our next speaker is an exceptionally good friend of mine, Dr Jim Taggart. Uh, Jim and I go back probably too many years that we're not going to admit to. Um, he is a serial MC for charitable events. I met him uh, at a charity event, I don't know how many years ago, and we just became friends ever since. He's an academic insofar as that he's an adjunct professor uh, with the University of Notre Dame. He's also involved with Western Sydney Uni, and I think you've been involved with a few others in that time. Um, he's done some extraordinary things in his career. He is an OAM. Uh, he doesn't make a big noise about that, but he should because he's earned it. Um, and he's a guy that I have no idea what he's going to talk about tonight. I've been to many events where I didn't know what he was really going to talk about, but it's always made me think. Listen well, you'll learn something. His, com his talk tonight is the role of academia in developing better business leaders of the future. I welcome Dr Jim Taggart. The student said to the teacher, who is the greatest thief of all? And the teacher was somewhat taken back by that question and said, would you repeat it? And the student diligently said, who is the greatest thief of all? And the teacher said, your attitude. Your attitude. In approximately 600 seconds, I want to connect with you. That's what I want to do. Thanks for putting that on. That's gone really well. <laughs> and I want to share with you because it's not about what I say, it's about what you think as well. Tim, do you want to use the mic? I, do you want the mic? Because I, do, you, do you want that, do you? Okay, all right, no problems. Sydney Harris says this, the whole purpose of education is to turn mirrors into windows. Think about it. Mark Twain says, never let formal education get in the way of learning. And I'm taken back by those things. I have three, maybe four things to, to share with you. I like order. For a guy that may appear not structured, I'm extremely structured and disciplined. The three things that I want to talk to you about is one, a background, secondly, jobs not created, and third, values. But I want to put another word in parenthesis around values because I don't see it in universities. And I want to share with you something that's really critical to me. And that is simply this, attitude. You know what the values are. 
You know, you know you don't steal. You know you don't hurt people. We know those values. But what I want you to understand is what is attitude about? How is your character reflective of the attitudes within? That's what it's about. I'm inspired by people. I'm inspired by someone who'll work at two o'clock in the morning to deliver pizzas because they have to pay for university fees. I'm inspired by people who will do things to get ahead and that's part of the journey to make who you are. I left school before 15. I have now finished five degrees, four postgraduate degrees, part-time, 13 grandchildren, four beautiful children and partners. I couldn't ask for anything more. I'm absolutely blessed. Have I been challenged? Absolutely, like you are there. That's why I share with you a respect of the journey that you're going through and I will continue to go through my own journey. Let me share these points with you. The background that I want to say to you is this, and please, I hope you understand. Can you hear this okay? Right, I really, sometimes I like just because I flick through things and, uh, and so on. The background is this, and I want you to understand what I'm saying. There are four distinct periods. The Industrial Revolution, around 1770. I don't want to get into detail if you want to say 1765 and things like that, I want you to understand. Not too long ago, not too long ago, based on mechanisation, the second Industrial Revolution, 1870. If you look at that, a little bit more than 100 years between the first Industrial Revolution and the second. Transformation took place. I hope you understand where I'm going. In that century, energy, gas and those things took on new dimensions. They created a whole range of things. The third Industrial Revolution, 1969, 1970, who cares? Less than 100 years, I'm trying to say to you, as Steve Jobs says, right, there are only two speeds now, forget about it. The period of industrialisation and the change, the transformation, the structural transformation has taken place in less and less time. Now let's turn to the fourth industrial revolution, what we call industrial four. What's happened there? Well, it's very clear. Smart factories, smart cities, people and culture. The world is not defined by boundaries anymore. And that's been alluded to today. And there's a whole range of challenges. I hope you understand where I'm going. I'm trying to challenge you with where the world is now. What's happening in the world is incredibly enriching but challenging. So let me continue. Jobs not created. So there's the background. And if you think things are fast now, We've just had the first CEO robot being created. I think Sweden or Netherlands or somewhere there. So the robot is, is the CEO. They report to a robot. Oh, that's going to fail. Probably will. But someone will come ahead and in five years' time will be better. And you could be in this room. That's what I'm saying. The power of knowledge and learning attitude. 85% of jobs that will exist in 2030 haven't even been created yet. 
let me run these by you. Spacecraft pilots, climate change specialists, A1 ethicists, A augmented reality journey builders, vertical pharma consultants. As less and less urban land is around, people want consultants to help them grow food. What are the jobs, the attitudes, the values that come through there? Drone traffic controllers, and here's one of interest to all of you. Digital detox therapists. Really, in really interesting. And this one is interesting to me, end of life consultants. As I reach that part of my journey of ending life, what do I want to achieve in this shorter period of time? Not living longer, but what do I want to achieve in that time that's left? That's really incredible. And you know what? It's all about the individual. It's all about the individual. So that's jobs not created. I say that to you to tease you. Let me say this to you. In a, in a really interesting article, and I, I, I'm happy to give this to you, George, called World Economic Forum, the top 10 skills. You see, if I say this to you, having an accounting degree, a law degree, or any of those degrees, fundamentally will be outdated within four years. The knowledge, the knowledge, what we call the cognitive part of the equation. The skills for me is this, and this is what they talk about, analytical thinking, creative thinking, resilience, agility, motivation and self-awareness. Do you know what? We were in business for 25 years and George knows that. I was probably middle of the pack in financial planning and those things in our group. They were much smarter than me. Young people too, much smarter than me can do calculus and all of that stuff much better than I could. But what we did was we had trust. We had honesty to be able to share with each other relationships. Relationships, any of you at accounting, doing accounting? You said you're accountant, right? You can tell on a balance sheet the importance of looking at trust as an asset and or a liability. Because just look at the bottom line in the P&L. So I'm simply trying to say to you, how strong is your ability to do that? So here I say this to you. What about technology literacy? What about things like dependability, empathy, leadership, and quality control? These are really important, lifelong. When I went to school, you got your degree, if you, if you went through, you got your degree and it was boxed. That was it. Now, the expectation is you do micro um, study, micro-credentialism, all of those things with parallel to your degree and so on. And you know what? When I left teaching, I started teaching in high school. I'm sorry, I'm just talking very quickly. I can talk to you lots of things. They said to me, oh, Jim, I finished a diploma in teaching. And they said, Jim, if you want to get ahead, you're going to have to get a degree. Okay? I was married. Go and get a degree. Jim, we think you can go ahead, but you're not going to cut it with one degree. You're going to go and have to do a master's degree because you had to be in front of the pack. That's what I'm really trying to say to you. You need to work out where you want to be. And then my lifestyle is no better than yours. Let's get that really clear. What I'm trying to give you is a level of passion to be the best you can. I woke up, I've been married 46 years. I turned 70 next year. A lot of my life's gone whether I like it or not. So what do I want in my life? 
What do I want to be remembered by? And so on. Jim, how does this relate to universities? I can't put it together. Well, I'd be sad if you haven't. I'm saying to you, do what you can. Millennials and all of that will do three or four careers. We hear all this stuff. I can give you all the stats and that stuff. But I want you to be the best person you can. The conversation we were talking, I'm sorry I've forgotten your first name. Eden, about your travels and so inspired me. Because in life, moments help us improve ourselves. They challenge us, but they improve ourselves. And so I want to say these fine, final things if I can, because time gets away. What's really interesting that I found 40 years ago was people were contained and kept everything within a box. Today, collaboration has become such a critical part in the supply chain. So if you can't build those things that create inquiry, and what I'm really big on this, has a, a level of trust, and I call it human glue. If you can't build human glue, it doesn't matter how many degrees you have. How are you, good? Hot day, yes. No, I'm simply saying, people, you, you, they are skills you'll need to work with. We talk about, um, I've just finished teaching a, a, a first year subject um, and, and, and we talked about diversity and cultural, you know, harmony between different cultures to try and bring about output. Because at the end of the day, in a capitalist system, whether you like it or not, there's this thing called profit you've got to make. Whether you like it or not, you've got to make that. And that's what is the residual that gets, you know, given to people and, and, and shared. So what I'm saying to you is if you can't create that, then you're going to go, Steve Jobs, when he ever wanted to develop skill, he would put four or five different people together, not the same people, because they had a different view about the problem. That's the richness of being able to do that and have respect for people. And I can look at your eyes and tell you whether I've said anything to you. You tell me. Nonverbal clues, uh, clues are very good. How are you? Good. Great speech. Yep. I'm saying sometimes what and how we say something speaks so loudly, I don't even hear what you're saying. So what I'm saying to you, yes, you can have your accounting degree and I've done the same and finance and all of that stuff. But AI and all of that is taking that world. But what they cannot take is the human glue from you and I. Do you have to be smarter to get it? Absolutely. Do you have to make it a forefront of your thinking? Absolutely. I know whether you like me or don't. You don't have to say, I don't like you. They're the things that university needs to do. And can I leave you with one thought that I think universities should be doing? And I was saying to George on the way, George kindly gave me a lift and I thank you for that. I really believe that in your undergraduate and even postgraduate studies, you should have a journey which is worth one whole subject and you do it in year one, year two, and year three. You have a bundle of papers like a thesis, and then you write three to 4,000 words in your final year of study that test all of these things that I spoke about. Not how to understand cash flow analysis or uh, you know, what is a contingent liability on the balance sheet. That, 
easy. But what attracts and makes you, gives you that positive attitude, I better be quiet because time's way over, right? But I'm saying they're the things and we'll all be challenged. And can I share something with you? Can I share something with you? I can remember when I was married working in jobs that I absolutely hated at two and three o'clock in the morning to raise money so that I could do other things. That was part of the equation. That's what I'm saying about attitude. I hope that you understand those things. Not all of us like eating our vegetables. I hope that resonates with you. Can I leave you with this again? The whole purpose of education is to turn mirrors into windows. Thanks. I'm often amused when people clap as either to get you off or they, you know, got something from it. I think another great presentation, Jim. Um, thank you so much for highlighting the importance of you know, those soft skills that we need in today's era, more than the hard skills. A lot of the times when you chat with university students, a lot, some of them, they still have emphasis on, oh, we've got a distinction. We've got a high distinction. Um, can I ask you, what are you doing outside of that? No, uh, we don't have any time to do any other thing. So what they've done is they've got a high distinction, but they have not worked on developing their soft skills. They don't know how to present themselves in front of an audience, or they don't know maybe how to tell a five-minute short story about themselves. If I ask a student coming out of a university, I can see the transcript, but I can't see whether you, you, you know how to tell your story. And I think that's a very important soft skill that any employer would look for. They don't want, they of course want your degrees, and I understand that's the foundation for judging you because you don't have any experience, so that's the only thing that they can see to test your aptitude. But then what really differentiates you from 10 more people who, are, who they are interviewing is how you present yourself. Uh, whether you can talk about yourself for a few minutes, whether you can, uh, whether you have a mindset which really reflects growth, or you just think in a very, short perspective, short-term perspective. So I think that's a great, uh, you know, great thing that Jim talked about. Our final speaker for today um, is Afonso Fermo. He's the co-founder and director of NetNada. I met him um, a few months ago, uh, in fact, in one of the Sydney Startup Strider runs organized by one of my other friends, uh, Michael Batko, who was also our, one of the speakers on this podcast, he's the CEO of Startmate. Uh, and then uh, I ended up inviting him to one of our episodes uh, as well to talk about climate change. Um, so NetNada was built on a mission that companies, no matter their size, have a vital role to play on the future of the planet. And what he's doing is he's helping organizations track their carbon emissions, uh, which is again, uh, something organizations are not doing it uh, that actively. So he's taking that charge, uh, which is an incredible thing. He's going to talk about on the topic of business growth and climate change, how do they work together? I might just face you. No, All right, how's everyone? Good, good, that was, that was hard to follow. 
to be honest, you know, I'll try to be as passionate. Um, I also have the challenge of being the youngest in the room and I have the challenge of keeping it under 10 minutes so we can all have some pizza afterwards. Uh, so keep me, keep me on check. Um, I want to speak about um, what NetNati is doing. Most importantly, what is your role in the journey of uh, business sustainability and in theory as, as an end goal, tackle net zero challenges um, carbon neutrality and of course decarbonizing our economy. A bit about, m about myself, I'm an environmental engineer from UNSW. I graduated and I quickly followed the path of not working what I studied in and instead created my, my company. I had a total of three companies by now. One of them failed, uh, one of them succeeded okay, it's still operating and now NetNada which is actually supported by UNSW and we work just upstairs. We are a team of uh, six to ten people with part-time and full-time people, and we help companies and, most importantly, individuals like yourself um, tackle sustainability and common problems inside companies. What I meant by individuals like yourself, what we did find out when we just started is, okay, we're going to find every head of sustainability in Australia, and we're going to support them to measure their carbon emissions and make change and help businesses. What we soon realized, the people leading the change inside these companies are not the head of sustainability, they don't have a formal position. They are marketing uh, people. They are people in finance, in operations. And their role is, how do I transform my passion into action inside this business? And to do that, they need support. They need tools. They need to fight biases and so forth. So it's really interesting to find out and learn more about who are the Australians and non-Australians people inside these companies leading the charge. And you have conversations with them. And you ask, what is your biggest problem? And it's like, to, for my boss to accept the money that I'm asking for him to buy X, Y, and Z, to convince my colleagues that this is important and we should do this report, to convince my partner that I should stay up at night uh, working extra hours because I need to finish this initiative that no one is paying me for. So that's been a really, really good learning. Now, in terms of how we tackle um, business growth and climate change, it is important to understand what is climate change. Climate change, it is the variability of temperature and weather pattern, uh, patterns, and the consequence of that is, you know, higher temperatures, sea level rise, people getting displaced, supply chains getting displaced, business as usual getting displaced, which means that the way that you operate will cease to exist in a way, and sustainability goes from a nice to have to a license to operate. Because if you want to win a contract with the government, you want to win a contract with NSW, you win a contract with your next client, you'll have to be a sustainable business. Given that, not being sustainable in the future just doesn't work out. You can't just go to market with a product that is not recyclable because no one will buy it. It won't be allowed. There'll be legislation that prevents that. So the mentality goes from a nice to have to a license to operate. That's how we then think about the great decoupling. What I mean by that is, these organizations that used to have a pathway of growth of just profitability is the biggest thing, will start thinking about what is the social impact? What is the environmental impact of these businesses? How are we supporting other communities that not just the ones we've just done before? And it's really important to understand as individuals here and the motivation and, and what are those skills is that these are not hard skills. You know, carbon accounting, which is what we do, measure carbon footprints, is a technical matter. But my role with software and AI is to replace that, that no one has to think about carbon accounting. What you have to think is to build relationships with people internally inside your company to make change, to build relationships with your suppliers so they can do better and become a better supply chain, you know? To attract the talent that will disrupt the ways of operating today 
to create new ways of having a business. So that's really important now, the technicality of climate or carbon accounting and sustainability in general. The other, the other important thing, keeping myself on check, um, is, okay, Afonso, if this process is so easy of measuring carbon emissions, how do you actually do it? Well, carbon accounting or measuring carbon emissions is nothing more than doing normal accounting, just putting things into different buckets. So it's which activities generate the most impact on the environment, and there's information by UNSW, by other research centers that determine that impact, and your task, your role inside these companies is to just multiply numbers. So it's actually very straightforward, people make it more complicated than what it actually is, and there's now software to help you out. What is important to focus is the outcome. Because you have to convince stakeholders, you have to make change, you need data for people to accept that something is wrong and it needs to change. So same thing with biases and equality, it's ways to convince policy, to convince um, legislation, to convince decision makers based on actual information. So it is really hard to, for people to say, okay, let's be more sustainable without first understanding what is the negative impact that they're having. To summarize that in, Okay, so what is the, the possibility of creating a business that still operates under like a, a, a changing climate? And when I say changing climate, in an environmental sense, in a market sense, in an economic sense, all you have to do is become a sustainable business that does not contribute negatively to the planet. However, what is the challenging thing? It's a teamwork activity. Everyone is to be involved. What I mean by that, you can't be sustainable if the energy that you buy for your house, it's coming from coal, right? And you can't go and change, you know, what type of electricity exists in Australia. That needs to be done by legislation, by policymakers, by people in different organizations, in different teams. And they need to help you so you can become better. And you need to become better because you need to help the ones who buy from you. And as individuals, you need to educate yourself, right? You need to upskill so you can help others join you on that journey. So to summarize, with you know, two minutes to go, is I'm, I'm keeping my, my task on check so we can have some pizza, is why did you start NetNada, Afonso? Well, I started NetNada so you can spend less time on spreadsheets and more time around people. Because at the end of the day, the ones who are gonna change climate, the ones who are gonna make businesses who are sustainable, are people from diverse backgrounds, are people who need convincing, are people who might not have the available data at their hands and they need data to back up their decisions, and are people that ultimately might not think that climate change is here, might not think that it's gonna happen in five, 10, 15 years, but it's up to us to educate, to empower ourselves and have those conversations so change can really happen. And I have two minutes and a half to go, and I'll open that for questions if you do, or if not, we can just go have some pizza. Any questions? Yep, sorry. So this, um, this uh, carbon accounting, right? Mm -hmm. Is this for firms of all signs or is it targeted towards like a specific firm size? Yeah, um, it's for all sizes. That activity of measuring your impact is for business of all sizes. What does change is legislation. Large organizations, you know, ASX 200 companies, or something market cap, they're not being mandated to report on those emissions. So they have like, not nice to have a legislative pressure. What is happening is if a large co company is now forced to report, 
Their emissions imply who they buy from, which are the suppliers, and that supplier might be a small company, might be a small marketing agency with six people that didn't think they had to measure and report and become sustainable, but now they do. In SW, same thing. Large organization has to report, and suddenly the gardener who does, does the landscaping and has a 10-person landscaping company will have to also report and measure. So even though there's legislation at different levels of company size and industry, everyone is rather quickly getting impacted just because of the network effects of how supply chains work and where that is coming from. That's a really good, good question. Any other questions? No? Awesome. One minute and 10 seconds to go. We've done it. Good job, Tim. Thank you very much. So we will allow you to have some pizza and we will allow you to have a drink and we will allow about a 10-minute break. If you have no questions when we come back, these four people are going to wonder, what was the point? If you don't have a question at the moment, I ask you this, if you did have a question, what would it be? And if your answer is, I don't know, that's okay. If you did know, what would it be? So if you don't sit around and you don't think about questions and you don't ask more and you don't seek more information, then all you get is input to a certain point. It's when we think about what we hear. It's when we consider what we hear. That causes us to start to get somewhere. So if each of you are going to go and have something to eat, which is great, and come back here in 10 minutes, the challenge is for each and every one of you, if you did have a question, what would it be? See you in 10 minutes. Before we get into the question time, I just want to thank each of our speakers. Um, I hope that everybody has taken away something from each of the talks. I certainly have. Um, and I want to extend an invitation to each of the speakers that we will invite you to uh, attend our podcast uh, after the event at some stage and we'll expand upon your individual topics that you spoke about. Um, I have to say, Jim, in all the years I've listened to you talk, that was probably the most passionate I've seen you and, I, and, and that's lovely to see that you still got that. So I miss sitting and listening to you in the past. Afonso, um, great timekeeping. Um, we really would have let you go a little bit further, mate. We're not, we're not that tough. All right, so this part is interactive. The way it works is you ask a question and they'll answer it. Um, I have a question for Afonso. Um, what was the most challenging um, activity, product or service uh, you wanted to track and um, what was the outcome? Yeah, um, definitely. I think I mean, on an organization level maybe, which one of the most challenging? We first thought large organizations are harder to analyze because of the complexity that they do. So we work with like Zip 
you know, payment services by an operator and they have multiple offices across the world. But however, they were so ready for the journey and they had such, you know, eagerness to complete the task. It was very straightforward. But sometimes what we feel like is that in small organizations, um, it becomes a bit more complex because there's not a key decision maker and a leader driving the process. And even though that the simplicity of the measurement, the simplicity of the measurement should be more straightforward, you end up being blocked by people not wanting to get the job done. So I think like there's an element to that in terms of organizations. When it comes to actually technicalities of the products, things with long supply chains are hard. So if you think about a product level, I want to track furniture coming to Australia. The metal alloy might be mined in Africa that gets sent to China to be manufactured. It gets wood from you know a South American country that's get assembled somewhere else. So those complexity networks are really challenging. So furniture, but also textiles are really, really hard because of the long uh, supply chains. And they become things that might not be able to tackle in an automated way, but you really need consultants to kind of deep dive into the supply chains. So on what we do, People might be the biggest barrier. And it's not about the size of the organization, it's about who is driving the change and how ready they are to kind of provide the data. That's a fantastic question. I'm looking forward to kind of talk more about it. If you put the mic in your other hand, your left hand. Already gone. Already gone. Oh, we'll bring the mic back. And if you, if you now pass that to your left, I'll bet there's a question there too. <laughs> Very. Very smooth, George, very smooth. <laughs> um, thank you to each of the speakers. Um, like I was telling George, I have seen so much passion in one room today, and we all love passion. We all love people who are passionate about their respective fields. Um, my question is for Sandra. Um, thanks for addressing the elephant in the room and talking about um, things that we all want to talk about um, and things that we feel as women. Um, my question is that as someone who's been in the workforce in Australia for about two years now and, and previously been in France and the UK and of course I'm Indian, so in India previously, this is the only country where I've actually felt like yes, there is a difference and, and um, like, it, it, it's not spoken about but you feel it, right? Like as, as the only female member of a team of like almost 21 people, I feel it. I feel that there is a difference in the way you're spoken to, in the way you're dressed and things like that, despite your expertise or despite who you might be. Um, what do you do personally to address um, such things in, in or what have you done? You said you started off as an accountant and then you worked your way up and now you're into marketing. So what, ha what are the steps that you have taken um, and, and the reason I ask this question is as someone who plans to live here and work here for years to come, I think it's very important for me to understand this from someone who's been in this market for such a long time. That's my question. Very good question, a very big question. So um, there's, there's two, I guess, um, ways I'm going to answer this. One is um, with ELECT we have programs now to help women to, um, it's not, I'm, I'm very much against like women programs because a lot of women programs in the past, they taught you how to uh, dress like a man, talk like a man and, and behave like a man. And, and, and our program is not to change you, uh, not to change women, but to understand like the stats I talk about, to understand uh, the biases 
and also what you can and empower them to how you can help make those systematic change within yourselves and by being seen, by being heard and, um, and how to uh, manage your way through getting a promotion and working up to the leadership role. So that's our program. I'm very passionate about that. We're working with corporates who sponsor those programs, but next February onwards, there are a lot of women who are working for companies who don't care about stuff like that. And so we want to offer individual programs and that's coming out in February as a 12 month program. And the outcome is that you get a promotion. You work through to get a promotion out of that. So that's one answer. And I'm not trying to, by the way, pitch business, <laughs> um, but it's marketing in me. <laughs> Um, and in terms of my background, yeah, I started off as a, uh, an accountant and, I, and at the age of 21, I was a financial controller of a multinational publishing company and I didn't even get, didn't do an accounting degree or got qualified. Um, and so I had very good mentors and it was also a very blokey environment still um, and which I worked my way through um, and it was in the late 20s, early 30s, that I do notice that I keep hitting the brick wall, the glass ceiling, that everybody talks out. And back then, I looked a lot younger. I was a lot thinner. <laughs> and um, um, and funny enough, it never occurred to me, because I always sat in a room with, um, and no offence, by the way, but to, with middle-aged white men, and I felt like one of them, you know. <laughs> Um, it wasn't until later on in life and in career that I saw diversity that I thought, oh, that's how I look like in a room, because I, I, I stood out. Um, I did the career change as a way to... Um, to firstly, I, I think I got tired of, of um, accounting, and I wanted to... I needed flexibility. I was a CFO, CEO then, working 80 hours a week, and, um, and I had a daughter who required a lot of hospital admission. And, um, and my husband, um, was, he's a great equal partner. So I talked, I, didn't, I know I only had 10 minutes and I could have gone on, but it does matter who you have at home to support you as well. And we both work. He couldn't be a stay-at-home dad and I couldn't be a stay-at-home mum, but we made it work between us. Um, and so that's on my personal level. And the um, entrepreneurial journey helped us give us that flexibility that we need. And then I'm actually, you know, talking about career change. This is my third career change because I'm focusing on gender equality, which is my passion. So I'm combining my volunteer work that I've done for 20 years into a business that I could do as my day job. Um, so I don't know if that kind of answers your question, but um, but hopefully, if not, I'm happy to stick around and, and, and help and answer any questions. Yeah, I do that. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you. Okay, so we're all about gender equality here and we want to get diversity. So now, who's got the first question from... Ah, there you go. Well done. Hey, Jim, question for you. The world is so polarised, and I think trust has been eroded. How do you believe we can build trust by making a positive impact? That's, that's a really good, good question, and I don't say that just for the sake of it. You see, trust is complex, and I don't want to go into a, a whole range of things. Essentially, there's two types of trust. There's what's called cognitive trust. You can always trust people. For example, I will always be on time. Please understand what I'm going to say to you. But do you trust me with your emotions? No way in the world. So when we say trust, I don't know what you mean. 
No, so I'm being, I'm being really honest with you in terms of it. Please look at the literature. Trust is not, oh yes, yeah, look, I'll see you for drinks at seven o'clock. Sure, but I don't like her. Oh, sorry for the honesty. I would do it much more seriously and so on. But what I am saying to you, I'm trying to answer your question about trust. You have to understand what trust is. If you're talking about trust in the business sense or organisation, there are still people who have no trust in business. If I can get over you, that's fine. It's justified. The world is moving more to a collaboration model. And I think that people are getting tested with that. And I, I say that because I want you to take away is what, when you say some, to someone, I trust you, what is it you're really saying? So how do I trust people? I think I have an intuition to be able to read people pretty well. And that is a skill that you practice and you do. And people will tell you whether they like you or trust you or not. Distance between two, looking at each other, talking to you. See, I believe people. If you're going to ring me at 7 o'clock, I respect you and I will wait for that call at 7 o'clock. Not for you to tell me at 20 past you've been busy. I find that disrespectful. Sorry, I'm, I'm trying to answer little, little curved things. I'm so busy, so I'm not. Is that what you're saying when you contact me at half past seven? Those things are really important to me. I will have that in your inbox at seven o'clock. Why? Because I'll get up at five o'clock to make sure it's there. That's trust. I need to feel that and I need to know that in business or in life. Nothing's greater for me when my grandchildren cuddle me. Trust. If I say I'm going to buy, I want you to understand what I'm saying. If I say I'm going to, we've just come back, I said, from Japan. If I say I'm going to bring you back a present, I will bring you back a present. That's how you build trust. I hope I'm making sense to you. And you then transform and translate that into a whole range of other environments. I can remember growing up where trust was broken so many times in my family. I'll leave it at that, but I just for you to think about. I was very fortunate. Um, my birth father brought me into this world because without him, my mum couldn't have had me. But he wasn't the best father that one could have. He tried his best, but he wasn't the best. At the age of 12, I met John Carter, who became my life father. And he said to me the day that, or the week before I was starting high school, and he said, you're now entering into a different world. And he said, your name is so important. And if you want people to trust you, don't make threats, make promises. But he said, I see, I see threats and promises different too. He said, don't threaten that you're going to tidy up your room when you tell your mum you're going to do it. Promise her. And so that word has always meant something very strong to me. So whenever I promise something, be it good, bad or indifferent, people know I will do it. Um, my nose is not in the best of shapes. 
Um, we had an exceptionally good fighter in North Sydney Boys High. And I said to him, if you hit me one more time, because he used to, I had, my, my mother insisted I cut my hair very short, and so my ears stuck out. And I was called Noddy, I was also called uh, Taxi, doors are open. And this bloke used to think it was funny to come up and hit my ears. I said to him, you hit me one more time in the ears and I'm going to smack you in the mouth. He hit me one more time in the ears. I believe I did actually land the punch. My friends tell me he got me three times, one, two, three, before I hit the ground and broke my nose. But everybody else in that school never came near me because he was the guy that did what he said he was going to do. And all my children will tell you, if dad promises, it's going to happen. To me, if you want to earn trust, it's not about what you say you're going to do. It's like he says, and that's why we get on so well. It's about doing what you say. And George, can I just say, sorry, that, that, that's, that's very elegantly put. Be selective in what you say you'll do. I just give you that by passing. Yeah. Don't throw it around as if it's a, a cheap bag of chips. I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it. No, all, all my kids and, and many of my good close friends know when I use the word promise, it's a done deal. Okay. Um, so who's got another question for us? Okay, we've got one at the back. Stu's got a question over here. Go for it. Um, so thanks, everyone, for sharing your insights. Um, I have a question for David and Sandra. I think you guys are focusing on very important areas. And I think for me, um, you know, I, I, I don't, uh, you know, fit into, I guess, those areas. Um, but I'm wondering, as an ally, what can be done to support, like, women or migrants and asylum seekers? And... How could I use a position of supposed privilege to help them on their journey, I guess? I would normally say ladies first, but gender equality, you go first. <laughs> uh, thank you for the question. Uh, so if I understand correctly, you're wondering what you can do to support other people to access the opportunities yep, through the privilege you have. Um, it's a good question. Uh, I, I mean, as someone who probably ticks every privilege box myself, this is something I think about a lot. But I think one of the things you can do with privilege is use that to open doors. So part of the privilege comes from having power and having the ability to control resources and provide opportunities. So I think to do that, you have to be willing to step aside and let other people come in sometimes, or you have to create space for people to, who maybe don't look like the typical person for that role to be able to step into that in some way. So that doesn't mean, I want to be clear that it doesn't mean you just step aside and let them do it without any support. So one of the things that often happens, I think when we're trying to include um, diverse groups is we get excited about moving aside but we don't support them to fill those roles and to do those roles um, at the level that anybody else would and I don't think that's always what applies with women it applies a bit more with some other diversity groups that may 
have not had the same opportunities to have the same experiences and the same training. And I see that a bit with refugee and migrant groups. I think it probably happens with women, but I'll let um, Sandra talk to that. I think so. I think one thing is looking for spaces you can create for other people, um, because if you have privilege, you have those spaces and you need to open them up. Um, and I think volunteering and mentoring, like I talked about mentoring, mentoring has got to be one of the biggest things that makes a difference for people. So it's mentoring is that, that willingness to step in alongside someone and guide them towards where they want to get to. And that's mentoring is lots of different things. Sometimes it's educating and informing. Sometimes it's motivating people. Sometimes it's just being on the sidelines to vouch for them and, and cheer them on, you know, in terms of trying. Uh, and sometimes it's tapping people you know on the shoulder and saying, you should give this person a go. Um, and that's kind of links back to my other point about creating spaces for people. So um, I think that's enough. I'll let Sandra add to that. Thank you. I mean, I agree with um, David. And there's two more things. Um, and I sort of talk about this in the book. Um, championing and allyship. So championing, I say this more so to, to guys, to men, um, is that if they spot talent um, within the company and, uh, and there's an opportunity, a role comes up that you think that person should apply for it, a woman in particular should apply for it, like encourage them, champion them to do. Because I talked about that stat, 99% of the time, and uh, um, when when a woman's like there's an opportunity and you ask a woman you should apply for that 99% of the time they go oh no me no I can't do that um, and then you take them for sorry I don't mean to <laughs> make that sound that sounds more like me um, you know more like then then what we encourage you is that you go and take them out for a coffee and uh, and and get them to understand like understand their perspective why they're um, reluctant to to apply for the role is it really because they can't do any of the role, that they feel like it needs to be 100%, um, that sort of stuff, and, 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 and encourage them to apply. So that's championing and spotting the talent um, within the company. The other one is allyship. And allyship is like mentoring, but mentoring um, where you have a more experienced person mentoring the less experienced person. Allyship is about um, connecting with the ones who are, people who are marginalized um, and, and supporting them and understanding their situation and, and kind of like, um, and it can even be reverse mentoring, but it's, it's, it's um, sort of like mentoring, but with understanding their, their um, situation a little bit. That makes sense. I'm trying to use layman terms. But um, yeah, but it's great that you, you, you recognize that and, and you're asking those questions. And I could talk about a whole bunch of stuff about accreditation, like what we do and things like that. But those two, championing and allyship, mentoring, and creating spaces, they're all, they're, they will all help. I think the other important thing is educate yourself and get to know people who are marginalised or who maybe are excluded. Because the more you get to know people and their real stories, the more you can be aware of the biases that you don't know you have. So make an effort to learn about it and... Um, and then find other people who want to do the same thing and, you know, get around those people. Thank you. Um, Stu, you had a question. We've got the mic for Stuart. 
question for all of you. Ooh. And a nice short sentence from each of you. Ooh. What is your purpose? Okay, my purpose is to make the 51% of the population not to be an underrepresented category. Good question. My purpose is to be the best person I can and to translate that immediately through my family. I used to say that my purpose was to um, save the planet. I used to say I'm busy saving the planet. Um, but I think my purpose now is just to make sure that people are happy. And that applies anywhere, in the workplace, outside the workplace. So it's a bit more generic. This better be good. You've had the <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that it's that good. Um, I think my purpose is to use the privilege I've been born into to challenge the systems that separate us. Good question, Stu. Um, so anybody else have a question? Who's got the next question for us? This question is for Sandra. In terms of gender inequality today, to the extent that they can be separated, what portion of gender inequality today do you think is caused by predominantly social biases versus, say, existing purely economic factors? So, for example, the fact that inheritance overwhelmingly tends to benefit men, et cetera. And where do you think, particularly in terms of building a better Australia, where do you think government can spend its money best to impact and meaningfully reduce gender inequality today? That's a top question. That is a very good question. Um, so I had all the answers, but then it's just all, it's just going to be one very long answer. But Okay. So with um, um, biases, it's, 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 it affects everything. And so um, where... Um, where we can, I guess, eliminate gender equality is to use quotas. And and you know, I know I know I'm a numbers person, things like that. But everything, everywhere that where you can measure, you'll start seeing improvement. It's it's everything and everything we do. Like um, you know, the the a woman woman takes time, not unfortunately. So so because um, the where women um, earning less. They get less super when they take time off um, to have kids and not earn any income. It just all impacts. They don't get the promotion. They don't get that. And do you know that um, the highest homeless group or the fastest homeless group or the biggest homeless group is women over the age of 55? Mm. Yeah. So, so to, to combat all of that is, is having the numbers to show, to be really transparent and say these are the problem areas and start measuring them so that, we, then, so that the collective group, including the government, can try and address it and reduce it. So the one thing that they're doing, and I talk about with Gia, 
um, they are making all the companies, I think Sarah also alerted to that, um, to make their pay gap transparent. Now, if everybody knows which company, which company has the, the, the size of the pay gap, they don't want to be seen as that company. And so transparency numbers, all that will help reduce the inequality. Okay, so who else has a question? We've still got time. If you haven't got a question, go back to what I said before. If you did have one, what would it be? I'll have to add something on privilege, if that's okay. Yeah. Um, I think coming from like a, a migrant ground, but of privilege in a sense of, you know, being able to come to study in Australia, it's expensive, a family who supported me and so forth. I think it's easy to forget on your journey to certain areas where you didn't have privilege and now you're in a position of power, to forget where you came from in a sense. And I think we should, in terms of mentorship and guidance and alliance, actively make part of our daily habits to be conscious of that and support the other one. And the easiest way that I find that is just sometimes thinking like two months back, what did I, what didn't I know that I know now? And use your new position to kind of share that. And I think it happens for me in the startup place. I think, oh, it's so obvious. It's so easy to kind of network and go to events and speak at panels. But I remember seven years ago, I was just entering this room for the first time without no clear idea what to do. And I think it, it takes not much time to reply to a LinkedIn message, to tell a friend that something is happening, to just kind of guide them in the journey. I think sometimes we got, I think in my world, a bit lost in like the big worlds and the big problems and the big challenges and making someone fulfilled might just be sharing a link to an event and, and guide them in that way because you are privileged to have contact with those people and, and be aware of that. So yeah. Okay, so I want to leave you with some thoughts. A lot of people do nothing because they don't know how to start. Nothing has an end unless it has a start. So if you don't know where to start, I'd like you to either write this down or lock it in your heads. Just write something. W-R-I-T-E. It doesn't matter if it's wrong. Then go back and write, R-I-G-H-T, what's wrong. So you want to do a business plan. Oh, I don't know where to start. Just write something. And then go back and correct it. So whatever was said here tonight, whatever got you thinking, oh, I wished I could do something, but I don't know what to do, just write something. And if you're not sure if that's right, if you don't want to contact one of these fantastic people, you can find me. And I'll tell you what I think. And that starts a conversation. We will never end the conversation about this, end the conversation about that, end the conversation about that, end the conversation about that, unless each and every person 
starts the conversation. There are many a good line in songs, one of the best we've ever heard, and most people don't even understand it. You are the voice. Try and understand it. Thank you for coming tonight, and I hope you've got something out of it. I will allow the pup to say something. Thank you so much, everyone, for coming tonight. Um, and thank you so much to our speakers for touching on some really, really important topics. Um, really appreciate you joining us this late uh, on a Wednesday evening. Um, and I think one of the main things for organizing this event was to just generate a discussion around building a better Australia, as you know by the topic. So what's that one thing that you will take away after this event and will really apply in your life from tomorrow onwards so that you can contribute towards building a better Australia? I think that's the one thing which we will consider as a victory for us, if you can do that from tomorrow. But till then, goodbye. Bye.